that you've demonstrated over and over and recognize our sin and guilt before you. And yet, Lord, you've also demonstrated your mercy and your grace, your forbearance. Lord, we thank you that you are our redeemer. Lord, help us to recognize and submit ourselves to you. Lord, we confess even as believers, we're often prone to wander away, follow our own own ideas, ideas of people and the society around us. Lord, help us continually return to you as our sustainer, allowing you to be our God and to care for us. Lord, we thank you that you're accomplishing your plan. We thank you for your word that you've given to instruct us and to tell us the things that you think we need to know. Lord, guide us. Help us to appreciate who you are, to be devoted to you, to acknowledge you. Lord, we thank you uh, that we can come to you with our petitions. We thank you that we can know that you care for us as a loving father. That even when you, in your wisdom, choose to allow difficult circumstances, that we can trust that you know it's for our good. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray that you would work in such a way that we can enjoy uh, uh, just peace and tranquility in our towns that so many people in the world don't have. And that we wouldn't just bask in that and indulge our whims, but we would use that as an opportunity to, uh, to boldly proclaim you. Lord, we pray for the brothers and sisters here in this fellowship, those that... Um, have recently lost loved ones or caring for loved ones that need a lot of just physical help, those that are suffering, whether the Davenports, whether house burning down, or others with financial needs. Lord, uh, give us opportunities to help one another as, as believers in using the resources you've given us to help each other. Lord, we thank you that you've assembled us as a family, Lord, a church family is just like our blood family. There's a wide variety of people. Some people we might enjoy being around more than others. But you love all of us and desire us to love one another as family. Lord, help us do that. Lord, as we look at your word today, I pray that you would help us learn what you desire us to know from the example of that you've given us of King Saul and King David's responses when they're confronted with sin they've committed that you would help us to examine our own lives by your Holy Spirit, that we would see what things in our life that we need to turn from and, and turn back to you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Scripture reading, we already saw that uh, John the Baptist and Jesus consider repentance pretty important. That's when out, what they went out and what they were preaching Peter also preached that uh, at Pentecost in his first sermons. He preached to the people that they should repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Be saved from this perverse generation, he said in the next sermon. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And God's servant will bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Paul also preached the same thing when he was in Athens, when he preached that people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And again, when he was on trial in Acts 26, Paul was preaching... Uh, he's, a, he's recounting what Jesus told him when, uh, when he called Paul, that Jesus had told him that he would send him to the Gentiles to open their eyes so, so they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been affected, sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, 
Paul continues, I didn't prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds appropriate to repentance. So repentance obviously is a big deal to the Lord and all of his messengers he sent were preaching repentance. And repentance apparently is connected with doing something in producing deeds. So what is it? What is repentance? And what is true repentance? And what is not true repentance? Well, what we're going to do is look at a couple of examples from the Old Testament of two different people who are confronted by God concerning a sin that they've committed. And what we're going to see in one, and that's King Saul, is we're going to see an attitude that is not one of repentance. And then we're going to see in King David, when he's confronted with a sin that he has, that he's committed, that he does demonstrate an attitude of repentance the way the Lord talks about it. Now, I want to acknowledge that I realize that these passages I read from the New Testament are mainly talking about calling people to belief in the first place and generally turning away from rebellion against God and turning back to faith in a dependence in God. And they're talking about calling people to salvation. And I realize that the examples we're looking at regarding um, Saul and David are just specific instances in their life, but they still demonstrate what an attitude of repentance is, what repentance actually is. In fact, in the New Testament, when you see, read through the Gospels and Acts and people are being called to salvation, just as uh, John the Baptist was doing, we see that there is a connection between that attitude of a true repentance away from rebellion against God and to God will manifest itself in specific actions. So just that is a way of a preamble. What we're going to do is first look at King Saul. We're going to look at a situation where King Saul has disobeyed God And God sends a prophet to confront him about it. And we're going to see an example of what is not repentance, true repentance. Now, in your notes, um, my notes are much more orderly than the story is in the text. And so I'm actually going to be skipping around between what the sin is and the rebuke and Saul's response and what the consequences are. But I'm just going to follow the story. Now, we're going to pick it up in chapter chapter 15. But first, in chapter 13, Saul has already sinned against God by doing something he had been told not to do. And you can go back and read chapter 13. It's very clear in the story the reason that he did it was because he was afraid that if he obeyed the instructions God had given him, that the people would leave him and he would lose his authority as king. And because of that, God has already told him, I'm going to remove you from being king over Israel and your descendants will not maintain a dynasty. So that's already occurred. So now we come to chapter 15. And again, God gives King Saul specific instructions about destroying the Amalekites completely. And God is doing that as judgment against the Amalekites for what they had done. So Saul, as king and commander of chief, has led the army. They defeated the Amalekites and they destroyed, but not completely. And we're going to pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 15, line 9. Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the ox and the fatlings, the lambs and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. Now, God had told them to. 
But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Samuel was distressed, cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. And then he turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. So Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I carried out the command of the Lord. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen I hear? Saul said, they, They brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we've utterly destroyed. Samuel said to Saul, Wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Saul said, Speak. So Samuel said, Isn't it true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribe of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And, and I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But, but the people, the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord God at Gilgal, Samuel said. Has the Lord much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Or Samuel said, verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it's better to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination as is iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, uh, I've sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I'll not return with you. For you've rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king of over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who's better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. Then he, then Saul said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul. And Saul worshipped to the Lord. Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag's thinking to himself, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What we're going to do is walk through this story and see this how this progresses as Saul is confronted by the prophet with his sin and how he responds. And I was thinking last night as, 
yesterday as I was working through the steps of this and all the things that Saul was doing. It reminded me of something I saw on the internet, internet some years ago that I thought it was pretty funny. It was a parenting thing, and the person was talking about what it's like to try to reason with a toddler. And they said trying to reason with a toddler is like doing hostage negotiations with a demented person. And, uh, and I thought, you know, that's what it's like reading this. Reading Saul's behavior, his circling around, his slipping and dogging around, as my stepbrother would say, and trying to squirrel out of this instead of just saying I was wrong. And the illustration about trying to reason with a toddler is kind of funny, but this situation isn't funny. Now, I want to say as we read about what King Saul did wrong, the sin that he committed... And later when we read about the sin that David committed, most of us in here probably have not done that. Most of us have probably never, as the king of a theocracy, failed to obey a command from God to annihilate a people group. We've probably never done that. But all of us have sinned. And if you get past what the actual sin was and just think in terms of disobeying God, the rest of this story is Painfully recognizable. Perhaps you know some people who have done some of these things. So let's see first. uh, First, when he's confronted with what is sin. We see what the sin was. He was given a command of what to do as commander-in-chief of Israel, and he didn't do it. So look at the first time that God has the prophet confront him in verse 14. Samuel said, Saul, uh, excuse me, yeah, Saul has claimed to have carried out the mission. But verse 14, Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? This really struck me that the first time this is presented to Saul, there's not just an outright accusation. What God has the prophet do It just simply lay evidence out on the table that something has gone wrong in the form of a question. Can you explain that? I got to thinking how often God does that in the Bible. Adam, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Cain. Where's your brother? Hezekiah. Those guys that came to visit from from Babylon. What did you tell them? What did you show them? Jonah. What are you angry about? Do you have a right to be angry? It's amazing how often God's first presenting... Someone with their sin is often pretty gentle, isn't it? Often giving people an opportunity to say, do we have an opportunity to recognize and acknowledge what we've done? I think in the counseling thing, one of the things that they say is, is how does it go? Uh, Questions convict, uh, accusations harden the heart, something like that. Anyway, that's he starts out. But look at Saul's response. And this is where it starts getting uncomfortable and and maybe kind of like looking in a mirror. Saul responds. Saul said, uh, they brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But but the rest we've utterly destroyed. I mean, he packed three things in this one sentence. First of all, he shifts the blame. He says, well, they brought the sheep and oxen. What did the narrator tell us back in verse 9? Saul and the people spared the animals. Already Saul is passing the buck. Rationalization. Well, we had a good reason for doing it. We're going to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And then a denial. Denial. He says at the end of the verse, 
Um, the rest we have utterly destroyed. I put in my notes here, as I was reading that, I was thinking there's really kind of two ways to deny an accusation if you get accused of doing something wrong. One is to simply say, I didn't do it. But the other one, which is probably more common, is what Saul does here. And that is, he says, well, yeah, I did it, but I don't think it was wrong. So the Lord has the prophet get a little bit more direct in verses 16 through 19. Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Saul said, speak. Verse 17, Samuel said, is it true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're exterminated? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel gets real specific. These were your clear instructions. You didn't do it. It's kind of a parenting tip when you're dealing with children. I, you know, when my children were little, I just get mad at them and they didn't know why. <laughs> I didn't go to the trouble to explain, okay, here's what you did wrong. Okay, Samuel explains this all. Here's what you did wrong. And when you didn't do it, you were disobeying the voice of God. And what does that mean? You're disobeying God. We're not just talking about breaking rules or stepping over the boundary in a basketball game. We're disobeying God and doing, what does he say? What was evil in the sight of the Lord. Saul is just thinking, what I did is not wrong. Well, who gets to decide what's wrong? Saul or God? What he did was evil in God's sight. Well, we get some more response beginning in verse 20. Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord, and I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Well, no, he didn't. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Does that sound familiar? He's already tried that once and it didn't work. It's the same thing he said before. He's just doubling down on his excuses. He's claiming he didn't do anything wrong. He did obey. He's passing the buck and he's trying to ration, using the same rationalization. This is when I got to thinking about arguing with a toddler. You know, it just feels like you can't make any progress. Haven't we been over this before? But how often has God done that with us? I'm 65, and in God's eyes, I'm still a toddler, and I still behave this way sometimes. You know, a big part of what counseling is, either if we're counseling our own heart, or whether we're doing formal counseling in the counseling room, or just simply visiting with a friend or a coworker, a lot of it is this, trying to help people see what's really going on. Well, the prophet is going to go over it again in verses 22 and 23. And now he's going to get more specific about why it was wrong what he did and what the consequences are going to be. Verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, the king has, he has also rejected you from being king. So what is Saul pointing out? You know, we tend to, I confess that one of my character flaws is I'm a rule follower. And the reason I call that a character flaw is because I usually am not a rule follower for a good reason. It's just, um, I'm a self-righteous Pharisee, you know, and if I follow rules and you don't, then I can 
look down my nose at you. And I don't know. I'm just I'm just a rule follower. But one problem with just being a rule follower is it kind of demeans what rules really are. When God has given us commands and instructions, again, it's not like just rules in playing Monopoly or playing basketball. And, well, I stepped over the line, but it's not that big of a deal. The point is when we're disobeying God and rejecting his instructions, the point is that that's rebellion against him. That's me looking God right now and saying, I don't care what you think. You're not so bright after all. I am. And that's why rebellion is like divination that is looking somewhere else for truth. And it's like idolatry. I'm going to look for something besides God to give me what I want and protect me from what I don't want. I can get that somewhere else. So God has Samuel make that clear to Saul. So now we come to 24 and 25. And what we're going to see is that we're going to see what on the surface kind of looks like Saul has turned a corner and repented. But we're going to find out he hasn't. Verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, Oh, I've sinned. I've, I've indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Now, at first, it sounds like he's confessing, doesn't it? Yes, I've sinned. But then what does he say? Now, at least he's come up with a new tack of rationalization. He's come up with a new argument. He says, I did it because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, in Saul's mind, that's an excuse and a rationalization that excuses him sinning. Now, we know from Scripture that all he has done is inadvertently he has admitted to the fact that he has committed another sin, the sin of idolatry of being more, being more afraid of people than he is of man. Um, what we see him doing is... And why we see that this isn't really a confession and admission that he's done wrong is he's trying to explain it away of why it's understandable and it's acceptable why I did that. This is where it gets kind of uncomfortable. If I may, if things may be pretty tense at home because I've said some really unkind things to my wife. And so I say, you know, I'm really sorry. I barked at you like that. But man, I had such a hard day at work. (laughs) You know, yeah, I'm sorry I sort of did wrong, but you can understand. It was really kind of excusable. That's what Saul is doing here. I think a lot of times when we make our excuses... Oh, I was really tired. I had a hard day. Or in his case, well, I had to do it because I was afraid of the people. Often the excuse that we give what we're doing is we're actually verbalizing without realizing what our idols are. We're saying out loud, it's for this reason that I will choose to disobey God. Because I want this more more than to obey God. This is one of the many instances where characters in the Bible say more than they realize they said. uh, Saul then continues... um, He says, return with me that I may worship with the Lord... Now, that sounds good, but what we're going to find throughout the rest of this book, or I was not going to read the whole rest of the book, is that what Samuel is going to continue to do is try to escape any kind of consequences to his sin. He's going to try to escape the consequences of his sin. So in verse 26, he's confronted once more. The Lord, this is, I think, the fifth time. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. 
For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. That's about as straightforward as it can be. And now Saul has a choice about how he responds to that. And look what he does. Verse 27. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. Verse 28. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And the God of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. And as you read all the rest of 1 Samuel until there's a final transition to Saul dying and David become king, is Saul frantically and violently tries to hang on to the kingdom and refuses to turn loose of it. The consequences are repeated again in 28 and 29 that we just read. And then again, we see a sort of a false confession in verses 30 and 35. Saul says again, I've sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. So there's something going on there, but what we see is Saul's main motivation is wanting to be honored in front of the people. He's still afraid of the people. And again, throughout the rest of the book, what we see is Saul refusing to accept the consequences that the Lord has placed against him. Under the consequences of his sin, and I'm going to, in your outline, not only his sin, but not truly repenting when he's confronted, some we've already talked about the loss of kingship and dynasty. It will no longer be his descendants that sit on the throne of Judah or the throne of Israel. Uh, That's going to switch to David. We know that. But the thing I want to point out, one of the things that's going to be important here is one of the consequences of his refusal to truly repent is the turmoil that that produces in Saul for the rest of his life. Uh, not just the outer situation, but within his own heart and mind. Saul spends the rest of his life more or less just a nut job. Uh, he's got all kinds of mental health problems. There's all kinds of instability. There's two times that he throws a spear at David and tries to kill him. Uh, there's once he even tries to kill his own son, Jonathan, because Jonathan knows that God has passed the kingdom on to David and that Jonathan is not going to succeed his father. But Jonathan's fine with that. Jonathan said, <laughs> he tells his dad, Dad, that's God's choice. You know, there's two times when David has an opportunity to kill Saul, but David is going to wait and let God handle the vengeance for that. Um, and we won't read it, but you're familiar with the story where when Saul is confronted with the fact that David had an opportunity to kill him and didn't do it, do you remember what Saul did? Well, actually, let's do read one of them. Let's First Samuel 24. This sounds pretty familiar, too. I think we've all experienced this in our life with ourselves and with other people. Chapter 24, we're going to start reading in verse 16. But what's happened is David and his men are on the run because Saul and his army are trying to find David and kill him. Okay, if you need any more evidence that Saul is not accepting the consequences of his sin, when God has told him David's going to be the next king, okay, here you are. So he's chasing David, trying to kill him, and while they're camped, The Lord enables David to get right up beside Saul. But David doesn't kill him and he leaves. And so then later, David sings out to Saul. says, Saul, why are you after me? I'm no threat to you. In verse 16, this is Saul's response. You see just how messed up Saul is in the head. Verse 16. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said... Is this your voice, my son, David? 
Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept, and he said to David, Oh, you're more righteous than I, for you've dealt well with me while I've dealt wickedly with you. You've, you've declared today that you've done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you didn't kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you've done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you won't cut off my descendants after me and that you'll not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul and they went to their homes. Does that sound like a repentance? Kind of sounds like it. What happens a couple of pages later? Saul is still trying to kill David. Until the end of his life, Saul is trying to kill David. This kind of maudlin grief and sorrow over the turmoil that the sin brings in your life does not equal true repentance. Simply being sorry about the calamity that your sin brings into life does not in itself constitute repentance. Repentance, as we're going to see, is when we acknowledge our sin and accept the consequences. Uh, the book of James talks about that. Keith is, aren't you doing James? Keith's gone. Um, Keith talks about that. He talks about uh, envy and selfish ambition. It, what does it do? It leads to all kinds of disorder and strife. James elaborates about that quite a bit. It brings every evil thing. Double-minded people, that is, I'm going to go worship the Lord, and then, in fact, I'm going to pursue my own agenda and try to do both at the same time, just leads to all kinds of turmoil. And that's what we see in Saul's life. Well, we're going to look at another example of someone sinning and being confronted by God and see how he responds. And I think the reason God gives us this story is so we can contrast the two. David, King David, in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. It's really kind of amazing as you're turning there. If, uh, you know, if I get my little yellow legal tablet out and I just make a list of all the sins that Saul committed that are listed in Scripture, and then I list all the sins that David committed that are listed in Scripture, you know, from a human perspective to me, it kind of looks like Saul comes out looking better than David. (laughs) David's life was a train wreck too. But there's something fundamentally different about David is the reason God said he's a man after my own heart. There's something fundamentally different between David and Saul. And that's what we need to see here. Now, the sin that David committed, most of you are aware, we don't need to read the whole, read the thing, but David basically commits adultery and the woman gets pregnant and David ends up contriving to get the woman's husband killed. So basically David murders her husband in order to cover this thing up. And then after he's dead, David marries the the murder victim's wife, the one he committed adultery with. And so now we're going to see him confronted with that in chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And what we're going to see again in the confrontation may not be apparent, but it's really the same kind of thing. God is going to have Nathan confront David with this, and he's going to kind of come in the side door. This time, instead of just laying out some evidence with a question, what he's going to do is present David with a hypothetical situation and then ask him a question. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. Now, the rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. I said there was a question. Obviously, the question is implied. Verse 5, David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who's done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. So when David's presented with a hypothetical situation that even just involves a lamb, but it's analogous to what he's done, even when it just involves a lamb, David acknowledges that's deserving of death. There needs to be restitution. So now he's confronted in verse 7 and 12. One of the most famous verses in the Bible. Nathan said, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Sounds similar to what he said to Saul. It's I who anointed you king over Israel, and it's I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little... I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. And taking the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to your wife. Man, that's all, that's all of it. One ball of wax, isn't it? Not even a definite, not even specifying what he did wrong. But the point is, in disobeying me, he said, when you disobey me, you're despising me. David, you have despised me. Verse 11, it gives the consequences. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'll raise up evil against you from your own household. I'll even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he'll lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. It means in public. So we see in this confrontation... God has Nathan specify what he did wrong and why it's wrong. That disobeying God is the same thing as just saying that to God. And he specifies the consequences that there's going to be turmoil in his house from then on. That the sword will not depart from his house. And he says... Uh, the evil will be against you from your own household. Wise will be violated by your companion. We'll come back to how that plays out. Uh, it'll, we'll specify uh, what happened in the story that that, that that occurs. So, when we read Saul's response to the confrontation, or being confronted with his sin, what did we read? Paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, round and round, circle and circling, rationalizing, passing the buck, denying that he did anything wrong, trying over and over, and then finally groveling. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, it's like your kids when they, or grandkids, you know, when they know you're going to take their tablet away from them, they get real repentant. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, give me my tablet back. Yeah. We had all of that going on. Paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. Second Samuel twelve thirteen. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. No denial. There's no blame shifting. 
There's no rationalizing. But all my other wives don't really love me. There's no desperate attempt to escape the consequences. I have sinned against the Lord. Metaphorically speaking, (laughs) biblical metaphor, he's just standing there naked before God. So what happens? An amazing thing. Verse 14. Excuse me. David said, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. He's forgiven. That's what we read about in David's psalm. David recognized that he'd been forgiven after having truly acknowledged that he had done wrong. Verse 14, however, because by this deed you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. What we're going to see... We're just going to read part of the consequences to David's sin. But what I want to point out first here is this is very important throughout of all of Scripture in our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. That when God forgives us of our sin, that doesn't necessarily remove all of the fallout and consequences of the sin that we've committed. And that doesn't mean that we're not forgiven or God that doesn't love us. But if you'll also notice here that part of the reason that there's going to be consequences is the effect that it has on other people. And the only thing I want to point out here to help us as God deals with us in our own lives is remember that as we're dealing with difficulties and hardships in life and maybe what seem like lingering consequences of sins that we've committed even though we've been repentant, It may be that the consequences that we're still living with, the Lord may already be finished restoring our heart, and we may have already learned our lesson, but God is working in everyone else's heart too. And we don't know how all of those things weave together. God doesn't tell us exactly what he's doing in Bathsheba's heart and in David's children's hearts and all the other people involved. I'm sure Uriah and Bathsheba had other relatives and There are other government officials. God is working all of that out together so that the consequences work out ideally in every individual's life that's involved. And you and I can't do the math. We have to do what David did. Look what he does. Look what David does. Continuing to read in verse 15. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David. So that he was very sick. And David therefore inquired of God for the child. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. Now the elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground. But he was unwilling. And he wouldn't eat with them. And then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. Now the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said... Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and and he didn't listen to our voice. How then can we tell him the child is dead since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he's dead. So David rose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and he changed his clothes. And he came to the house of the Lord and worshipped. And then he came to his own house. And when he reappeared, they set food for him and he ate. And now this confused his servants. His servants said to him, what's this thing you've done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. We don't in our society so much do 
a formal sense of mourning, but that's what it looked like to the people here. Uh, where I work in Papua New Guinea, remember one of my friends showed up to a workshop and he had this long, ragged hair and all, and I thought he'd gone reggae. What has happened is his baby had died. and He was in mourning. Well, it looked to them like that's what David was doing before the child died, but then when the child died, he got up, got dressed, combed his hair, was sat down and ate. They don't understand that. Verse 22. Uh, he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? <clears throat> the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may die. But now he's died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he'll not return to me. I'm not going to elaborate on that. There's a lot there. The only point I'm going to make here is what we're going to see in David and throughout the rest of his life is that he accepts the consequences from God. He doesn't fight them. He doesn't complain about them. He doesn't argue with God about how unjust it is. He left it in God's hands and accepted it. And I think you and I can challenge our own hearts when we're facing our own sin that I think it's a, we can really call into question whether or not we're really repentant of our sin if we're constantly fighting against the consequences. If I have, if I sin against my brother Carl and I do something really mean to him and he's offended by it and I go and say, oh Carl, I'm really sorry, forgive me. Well, if he has trouble forgiving me and we're kind of icy for a while and I start bowing up and getting all huffy, well, I apologize. Why don't he forgive me? Maybe I'm not really accepting the reality of how I've sinned against him. Well, that's what's happening here. David accepts those consequences. What David said should happen to the guy in the hypothetical situation, make fourfold restitution. You probably know the story, those of you that are familiar um, with Second Samuel. That's basically David loses four of his children. There's this baby dies. You're aware that his son Amnon rapes his daughter Tamar. They were half brother and sister. Then David's other son Absalom murders Amnon for having raped his full sister. And then Absalom stages a coup and David flees for his life. And while David's running, hiding from his own son, Absalom sets a tent up on the palace so that everybody can see that he's going in sleeping with David's harem. Well, then Absalom ends up being killed by David's general Joab, who, by the way, is David's cousin. Cousin? Help me, Gary. That's right. David's cousin. So basically, Absalom was killed by his own uncle. And then another son, Adonijah, stages a coup and tries to take over the uh, kingdom from David. And then after David dies and Solomon is king, there's more drama, and Solomon kills Adonijah. It's just one calamity after another, the consequences of his sin. But of all of that turmoil in his circumstances, when we read David's psalms of repentance, he describes, as uh, Pastor Keith read in Psalm 50, which Psalm was it, 53? 32, I'm sorry. It's 51 and 32, I get it mixed up. <laughs> Our psalm brother back there is saying, David, you don't have those straight. That he describes that inner turmoil and the mental anguish that comes when we just refuse to acknowledge that we've sinned against God. And yet, when we do repent and when we let God uh, follow through the way he wants to in our lives and the lives around us, there can still be a contentment and a peace and a joy in the Lord in knowing that we're forgiven. So what is repentance? I made the mistake of trying to look it up in all my technical helps at home and all my Greek lexicons and everything. The word basically just means change your mind. But clearly what it, the way it's used in the Bible 
is in the general sense to change our mind from being just a self-seeking, self-serving, self-indulging person in rebellion against God and turning away from that back to a submission to God and saying, God, you're God. It's right for you to be my authority. And you are right and just in a good God, and I want to be under your care. And, Lord, I confess all the wrong I've done. That I have rebelled against you. I have no standing before you because of my sin. And what God will do is God forgives us, just like he did David. God forgives us. But what we see throughout the Scripture in Saul and David's life and in the point that that John the Baptist was making when he was preaching, and Saul, when he was uh, preaching in his trial about bringing forth the fruits of repentance, we kind of get bogged down here because in the Bible it's true repentance will result in something. In deeds of repentance, things that indicate we have actually turned away from that sin and turned towards God. But I think that scares us because that starts smelling like work salvation. Well, Have I produced enough good works to prove that I'm really repentant? Well, here's the good thing. You and I don't have to figure that out. That's not our job. Job God is not measuring how well we shape up our lives and weighing how many deeds we did this or how many deeds we did that. It's not up to decide. What we are to do is simply put ourselves under the mercy of God. And he forgives us. He's looking at our heart. You know, if someone in this room repents, I'll look at my brother Mike here. He's been a believer for years and years. You know, I might look at somebody's life like Mike and say, I don't know if he's ever really repenting. I don't know if I see enough good deeds. I mean, deeds of repentance or not. But I'll guarantee you that when Mike dies... And he's standing before the Lord that God is not going to ask me for my opinion. He's not going to ask me. I don't know, Dave. I'm I'm looking at Mike here. We think. Uh, He's seen enough deeds of repentance. It's not up to me. He's not going to ask the elders of Grace Bible Church. He's not going to ask the congregation. Let's take a vote on Mike. How many think have been enough deeds? You know what? Our job is to recognize that all of us are equally sinners. And when we're truly repentant and trusting God, He forgives us. And He renews us and makes us His children and He gives us eternal life. And He starts fixing us right now, transforming us to be more and more like the Son. And ultimately, within the heaven, we'll actually be like him. And all of this mess will be behind. All the stuff that we're doing that we have to repent of, we won't even be doing it anymore. And we can start enjoying some of that even now. The Lord simply challenges us in book like Hebrews and John the Baptist that if there's nothing, there is a place to look at yourself and ask, am I repentant? But I say, look at the examples like David and see the grace of God in people's lives and experience that in your own. Not only to come to salvation, but day to day, be willing to repent as God confronts us, even as believers. The best thing to do when God confronts us is just say, yeah, I did it. I did it. And trust in his mercy and forgiveness. And the peaceful fruit of righteousness will be yours. Our Lord in heaven, we do thank you for that sure promise. Lord, we stand amazed when we see the examples of people in the Bible that as different as their circumstances are, they're not different from us. They are like us. Lord, every one of us, apart from your grace and mercy, we're just like Saul. We thank you that you're at work calling people to yourself, that your Holy Spirit is at work in hearts, convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Lord, for those here that have already trusted in you, repented of their sin, and are um, your children, I pray that they would continue to be responsive to your guidance as their father, as you day-to-day show them their sin, that they'd be willing to confess that, be cleansed of that, and to move on. 
And Lord, for those here that might be listening or um, uh, over the Internet, listening virtually. Lord, for those that have never truly repented that church is just simply something that you do occasionally and check the box, but they've never actually turned to you and away from a life of self-centered rebellion against you, that you would convict them, that they would know the joy and the peace of repenting and confessing and turning to you and what a loving Father you are and the restoration that you can bring and that we can trust you in uh, whatever things are past, whatever things that may hold for the rest of our life, that we can navigate those things with confidence, knowing that you're in control of those things. You can guide us and give us the strength to navigate those with the wisdom and the grace that you give us. And we thank you for those things in Christ's name. Amen.